0: Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. I'm Amanda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution, and increasingly in the service of finding a way through to that flourishing future that our hearts still know is possible. My guest this week is someone who has consciously brought together science and spirituality. Thomas Legrand is a Frenchman who holds a PhD in ecological economics, has studied international development, political science and business management. Now he works in the field of sustainability for UN agencies and private companies and NGOs with a focus on forest conservation, climate change, sustainable finance and organisational transformation. All of which is really impressive. But more impressive still is the fact that he's managed to weave all of that together with a background in which he had a shamanic training as a young man in his early 20s in Mexico in the wichol and then Toltec traditions, and he now lives near Plum Village, the Zen monastery founded by Thich Nahan in the southwest of France. And he's brought it all together in a book called The Politics of Being, Wisdom and Science for a New Development Paradigm. And this book is one of those where I have highlights on pretty much every page because it brings together Everything that Accidental Gods is striving to do, that merging of genuine, profound, worldwide, universal spirituality with the science and understanding of how human beings function alone and together, and how we can bring all of those into a coherent concept of the way forward that will see us through this gap in our existence towards the evolution of the whole of society, into a regenerative and flourishing and beautiful entity. So with all of that in mind, as I speak to the person who put it all down in writing, with huge numbers of really interesting references, should you choose to read it and explore it. And just before we head in to the podcast, I do have to apologize for the sound on both sides. Caro has done her absolute best, but all technological wrangles are entirely down to me, and I genuinely do not have any idea what the gremlins were doing, but clearly they were having a fun day. So, with full apologies for the quality of the sound, people of the podcast, please welcome Thomas Legrand. So, Thomas Legrand... Author of The Politics of Being, welcome to Accidental Gods, it seems a long time since we first set this up, but thank you for taking time out of Plum Village and your life there to come and talk to us.
1: Thank you very much, Manda.
0: How are you this morning?
1: Yeah, very good. Indeed, I'm just coming from from Plum Village uh, (laughs) for the podcast, we are on a retreat uh, this week.
0: Thank you very much. So do you get up as other Buddhist friends of mine at 4.30 in the morning and meditate for several hours before your day starts?
1: Uh, not really, <laughs> also because uh, I'm not so good, I have to say, in the morning, and I have uh, some children, I have two young children, so the last few years, I've done that in the past, but the last few years has been uh, I've been a little bit uh, deprived of sleep sometimes, so this morning I decided to uh, go to meditate at 6.30, which, is, uh, which was fine, but maybe because I'm on a retreat, so I, I took advantage of it.
0: Okay, and 6.30 still, uh, fairly early in the morning for those of us who really don't do mornings. So, your book, The Politics of Being, has really inspired everything that I've done recently because it so completely encapsulates everything that Accidental Gods podcast is about, everything that our Thrutopia masterclass is about, in terms of exploring not only the need for change, but the possibility of how we might get there. So we don't have 10 episodes to go through it. And I'd like then to explore, if we can, a synthesis of what you said, but then to spend the bulk of our time exploring how we might get there. So how do you best encapsulate this book?
1: Sure, Amanda. So, my static point, I mean, the main question uh, this book is trying, two questions this book is trying to answer. One is, what is a wisdom-based or, let's say, spiritual approach to politics and development? And the second one, we'll see it is really related. How we can tap into science to support a conscious collective evolution? So, I, it's a wisdom-based, science-informed approach to um, human development. And my starting point, because I, I want to provide a framework that everybody can feel comfortable working with, so I did some research about what wisdom traditions, we could say, uh, have said about sustainable development in big conferences like Radio Plus 20. or And they use the same sentence that is in the Earth Charter. That's a very important uh, ethical declaration that was uh, released in 2000s. And it says, uh, this uh, wonderful sentence, it says, uh, when basic needs have been met, development is primarily about being more rather than having more. So that was my uh, starting point with the politics of being. What if we focus on being instead of having? So what does this mean? Why is it uh, relevant now? Um, And how we can... Conceptu- uh, conceive such uh, politics and what is a very concrete pathway based on, a, on real examples in, of systems and public policies in many sectors. So that's really the, the core of the book. Um, so I define being by, uh, very simply, it's uh, becoming who we are, the best version of ourselves. And I believe this is also what uh, spirituality is about the science, art, and practice of personal transformation and and fulfillment. Um, And I've looked where are the seeds of this new uh, development paradigm. Uh, And and by the way, a new development paradigm comes with a new uh, story about who we are, about our human and social potential. And uh, we see also this uh, this story in... um, Different um, scientific, I would say, um, research area, which are linked to very practical uh, social change, political change initiatives. So uh, these seeds have to be found, I believe, in systemic, complex and integral thinking. Uh, The fact that everything is interconnected. Um, which you know uh, highlights uh, the importance of our being for system change. I think they are the, uh, really our mental models. And another seed is uh, I've called it life, but we can see you know in regenerative movement, like how we should harmonize ourselves as societies with how nature works. Um, another one is to be found in happiness. Uh, there's a new science of happiness, and it's becoming very uh, influencing in many countries on how to think about public policy. Uh, Bhutan has proposed uh, it as a new development paradigm. and Another seed is about love, compassion, empathy. For, for example, I use the example of Charter for Compassion. We're supporting uh, many local governments to become uh, compassionate cities, for example. Uh, peace, a culture of peace uh, that has been a UN resolution or a culture of partnership. And uh, mindfulness, which has been, which is more and more uh, entering into public policies. Also, there is this wonderful report, uh, UK Mindful Nation, that outlines uh, its potential in, in four uh, important areas of, of society and that has been um, endorsed uh, by many uh, members of parliament in the UK. So, we see uh, that these spiritual values uh, are, uh, you know, can be more and more influential uh, uh, to shape uh, a new culture uh, that would, uh, behind I think all these values, there is. Um, they are fundamentally about being instead of having. And, uh, and they indicate us, uh, the, the research, but also the practical initiatives, indicate us how to cultivate these values socially. So they, uh, many of them have policy recommendations for many sectors, and by bringing them together, we can have a, a political, a full political agenda around this new vision for societies that would promote uh, human flourishing and I would say even collective flourishing because being is not only for human beings but for all beings on, on this earth.
0: Wonderful. That's such an extraordinary manifesto for, for accidental gods and for the whole planet. So let's dive a little bit backwards and down to your origins, because you're living now at Plum Village, but you grew up in France, you spent time in Mexico, you spent time in various places around the world. How did you encounter spirituality in a way that made sense to you? I'm guessing you have probably had a fairly agnostic upbringing, but it you became intensely spiritual at a relatively young age. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, indeed, i I had a little bit of uh, of a Catholic upbringing, but not too strong. Uh, my mother also is um, Protestant, another type of Christian, and I was uh, quite religious when I was uh, a child. Uh, recently, I've been told that my grandmother would just pass away. Uh, one said, uh, uh, this child is very mystic when I was super young because she could see when I was entering a church or something that I was completely uh, absorbed in, in, in into that uh, dimension. But yeah, no, it, it calmed down a little bit by uh, teenage-out, uh, which was a bit uh, difficult for me. And it really uh, come back very strongly uh, during um, a student stay exchange in uh, in Mexico at, at the end of my studies where I had... a. Uh, a very deep uh, encounter with native spirituality, with some shamans. And I, I experienced a profound reconnection to um, to Mother Earth and, and to myself. And I found that as a, a healing path and an, an empowering path to really uh, transform myself. I was, uh, I would say, uh, I remember one night during a ceremony with that shaman when I first uh, met him. I was able for the first time, I would say, to see a very uh, concrete, structured path and, and something in me recognized that that was what I had always looked for. And right away, I, I knew that I would make, I decided to make that a priority in my life. And this led me uh, then to work uh, for the environment. Uh, I did later on a PhD in ecological economics, on tropical forest conservation. And, and this led me, I would say, to uh, adopt a path of service. So I, I, when I came back to France for uh, to end my studies, I, I I took extra courses to be able to uh, have a major in uh, international development uh, rather than probably would be something like uh, international trade or marketing I was into. And I was not, you know, I, I was... At that time, I thought I wanted just to travel and I had not... Uh, much uh, expectation about what I can bring to the world, but really my uh, semi-spiritual awakening really connected directly to um, adopt a path of service and contribute uh, positively to this uh, transition we're we're in.
0: And within that
1: path of service,
0: I'm curious about how your own spiritual evolution has taken you from that to Plum Village. And it, it seems to me reading the book that it wasn't It wasn't direct linear path and a lot of people who come to this and are beginning a spiritual awakening i think they can become disheartened because the path ends up being a sine wave a roller coaster it's not enlightenment and then everything is all baskets of roses and bundles of kittens there can be moments of extreme doubt and disconnection and all of the things that we do know about intellectually but it's harder at a heart level. How did you make the discovery of Plum Village and everything around it, and move to that rather than necessarily say going to live with the Weichol in Mexico? What was the the pull towards that?
1: I think when I when I when I look back to that, I feel really I've been uh, guiding, and even if it I uh, guided, and even if it was not. Uh, uh, in easy pass, and sometimes uh, it was difficult for me to leave Mexico. And uh, um, one of the reasons was also the, the girlfriend I was with that had some health issues. And uh, so it was not always fully clear. Uh, but yeah, looking back, I feel, and my path, I would say, in, uh, in Mexico was the Toltec teaching. So the, the, the path of the spiritual warrior. So there was a lot of willpower that at that time was really uh, important for me to, uh, you know, put in motion this process of of transformation. Uh, But at the same time, I I could feel I was really pushing into, you know, what I imagined was uh, the right way. And somehow uh, my life told me sometimes I had some difficulties and had to hit walls. Uh, But then I was able to to recognize that, you know... uh, when I was letting go, uh, things were really finding uh, their ways. So um, somehow my PhD uh, brought me to um, Costa Rica, uh, to uh, you know study uh, tropical forest conservation. And there I rented a room to a Costa Rican woman uh, who later on became my very quickly became my best friend and later on my wife. And uh, the, the first day we met, uh, she told me, uh, oh, okay, you're, uh, you're from France. Uh, there's a place I like to know in France. It's called Plum Village. And uh, I didn't know that place uh, at that time, so I was uh, French. And, um, and for a couple of years later, when we became partners, we uh, went for a retreat in Plum Village. Uh, and I a couple of weeks before, I wrote in my diary, uh, I feel there is something calling out there. And, and indeed, I remember uh, when I was driving from Paris to uh, Plum Village, I, I could feel that. And uh, we arrived, I think, probably uh, a Friday. And on, on Sunday morning, there was uh, the gathering of the three hamlets in one place. And there was, uh, uh, for the first time, I, I, I saw Thich Nhat Hanh in Plum Village. And starting with this wonderful chant about uh, Avalokiteshwara, Avalokiteshwara, the Buddha of Compassion. And uh, it was a very special and very powerful moment. And I could feel, wow, something, it was a very remote countryside of France. I could feel, wow, something, <laughs> something is happening in, in that place. And, uh, and I think that was the first time we, we feel, oh, okay, maybe we, we could be part of it. Uh, maybe we could live here. And, and then we came back uh, two months after. And then the, the vision was, uh, it's here and it's now. And then we moved back. Uh, we moved to settle down Plum Village uh, four months later, basically.
0: <laughs> and how long ago was that?
1: Uh, that was seven years ago.
0: Right, right. And, and now it's your home, clearly. Yes. And in those seven years, you've written the book, The Politics of Being, which seems to me quite carefully structured. You've obviously thought about it a lot. It starts off with the idea of what being is and then moves more and more deeply into how our culture isn't being and how it could begin to be. Quite early on, you have a quote from you all know Harari, who is positing that we are the last of the generations of humanity as we know humanity and that something new is going to evolve if we survive what's coming ahead. And he says, is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who don't know what they want. This leads Harari to suggest that we should invest the same amount of effort and money into advancing human consciousness as we do into improving artificial intelligence. And we're recording this on the day after the BBC reported that a robot at a chess uh, game in Russia had broken a child's finger (laughs) because the child was about to make a a move that might have beaten the robot. and this, this week, Google sacked the second of its AI gurus who said that their eye is now sentient. So we have put a lot of money and a lot of time into advancing technology and not so much into advancing human consciousness. But you're living at Plum Village, which is one of the centers of advancing human consciousness, and you are quite deeply involved in a number of international bodies that Explore the possibility of where humanity could be going. And I'm wondering, are you seeing people Engaging with the mindset that Harari is asking for that we do begin to invest serious amounts of money into Helping people to become People who want to be rather than people who want to acquire stuff.
1: I think this idea that uh we need an evolution of mindset, or we need a cultural evolution, I think this idea is getting traction very quickly at the moment. Uh, it was mentioned for the first time in the IPCC uh, report on climate change uh, this year, talking about inner transition. And um, I think it's already sometime that uh, it has been a little bit the elephant in the room that something we know in principle um, could make a difference but, uh, or is one of the factor but we just don't know how to work on it, I would say. And so we are more comfortable about working with the solutions that we are familiar with, even if they can't bring the the solution. Uh, But for us, I think, uh, you know, we are societies that are still very ignorant and blind to the inner dimensions. And uh, uh, one of the most surprised, you know, when I did all this research for, for this book during 10 years, I realized to see, you know, how strong was the case, and I was just surprised about uh, why we are not, you know, taking that so much into account in our societies. And I think one of the answers is that it's just so foreign to our software, and maybe we are collectively also uh, a little bit scared, probably, to to look inside and start to to work on these uh, on these dimensions. So. Yeah, I see it uh, moving uh, very quickly. I would say uh, there is consciousness as a mean to an end. So for, let's say, for the environmental ecological transition, for example, there is this initiative, the Inner Development Goals, which basically say, you know, to achieve the sustainable development goals, we need these transformative qualities and skills to to, to make that happen. Uh, my uh, approach goes even one step uh, forward, is that Being is not only a mean uh, to an end, it's the end in itself. And that's something we need to cultivate in everything we do, in every sector of societies, so that uh, we all societies deal with certain uh, problems, certain issues they need to uh, resolve. And what I'm proposing is to deal with them in a way that brings out the best in humans, Uh, rather than what is at the moment, and I I build on that uh, on the work of uh, Elinor Ostrom, who has been the first woman to receive the Nobel Prize in Economics, and she said the main lesson she learned over 50 years of research was that uh, our institutions are uh, based on the assumption that we are homo economicus, uh, selfish, just preoccupied by our our own material self-interest, And these institutions then enact the assumptions they are based upon. Uh, So we design institutions uh, around competition, um, scarcity, uh, etc., economic interest, etc. And then, uh, as she said, we should, on the contrary, design institutions that, that bring out the best in humans. And these have been, you know... Uh, teachings of uh, Aristotle, uh, very similar, or Confucius, etc. So it's all about you know how can societies and the states help us cultivate the virtues. Yes. So different answers. So I propose uh, in this book uh, to change our institutions. So you know as always, everything that we see in society has some causes. No. So just to understand where does this coming from. Right now, or um, Political systems uh, in the in the West, in particular, uh, can be uh, are democratic, but it's it's a certain form of democracy. Uh, yeah, more or less, I would <laughs> say. But it's an adversarial or competitive democracy, and we are really um, held hostage, I would say, from um, political parties, and that are competing for power. And, and this situation does not allow for us to have the kind of political conversations and choices that we need to deal with uh, uh, complex challenges, very complex, that we are working with. So there is a, a, a general right now, um, democracies in crisis, um, and people, it seems like in this difficult times, people may be receptive to the appeal of some uh, strong autocratic leaders. But when you uh, look at the studies of what people really want, what are their values, uh, they are very democratic. That's what people want. They want to participate in the decision-making, in shaping where society is coming from. So um, we need to change our institutions uh, in a way that brings us closer towards a Truly deliberative democracy, uh, with more direct democracy, also with a balance between direct democracy and the work of, of, of parliaments. And in, a, I, I propose also in my book a wisdom council that and recognize in the constitution uh, the general direction that we are aiming for, and make this wisdom council. Uh, responsible to ensuring through a uh, uh, debate, through studies, and through asking our governments what they are doing to bring us in that direction. And this chapter in my book on governance uh, is very interesting because it uh, it exemplifies well my methodology of bringing uh, science and wisdom together. So there I uh, build on the work of the, the Baha'i uh, faith, So there was Baha'u'llah, who was uh, the prophet of the Baha'i faith in the 19th century. And he had these very interesting teachings about uh, what he called progressive revelation, that basically in every time and space, different prophets come to support humanity's evolution. And he realized that every time the main hindrance for the next uh, revelation was clergy. So he made uh, his religion without clergy and paid a lot of attention to the Uh, administration, uh, to the governance of his uh, religion. And he said this would be uh, a template to be evolved uh, through experience, but a template that uh, humanity may choose freely to adopt for its own governance. And uh, funny enough, uh, it's very close to what uh, recent uh, political scientists have proposed in terms of an ideal governance system. So there I bring in the, the work of the Begrian Institute, which is one of the most uh, famous uh, institutes on think tank on governance. And, and they ask uh, some of the best Asian uh, scientists, political scientists, uh, on their own to reflect on what these uh, ideal governance systems would be. And they ask also Western scientists. And both groups uh, found a very uh, a middle way between uh, both systems, basically. And that's what uh, uh, Bergruen and Gardel in their book called Intelligent Governance. It's very similar to the work of uh, uh, to the, the Baha'i template. And it's, uh, it's a very non, uh, non-partisan politics, so where politics is built uh, from the bottom up through election at the local level and from representatives that then elect the next level. So it's a mix of, uh, let's say, what they call a democratic system, when people uh, vote and decide and the government is accountable to them, and uh, what they call meritocratic system in China, which is like, let's say, the principle of who knows better, decide. And they find a combination. They bring also uh, uh, a collective uh, decision making at the at the higher level, a kind of council. Uh, so they are very similar uh, uh, traits with uh, what the with the Baha'i model. So I think that uh, give us a clear. Uh, I mean, to me, it's very uh, convincing that this is a way forward, and it's also fostering, you know, what I call deliberative direct democracy, etc. So it's can be very much. Um, Adequate for all for times.
0: Can we talk a little bit about the potential for digital democracy? Because we know from Audrey Tang in Taiwan that digital democracy is possible. Tang is was one of the students that took part in the student revolution. I didn't even know it, did it happened, but there you go. Took Ethernet cable in, made sure that the whole revolution was thereby accessible to everybody in the country and was then invited to be the minister for digital access or something digital minister and is now using various forms of quite clever non-divisive web access as a way of bringing people together can you talk to that a little
1: bit sure so uh Taiwan digital democracy is a good example of uh, deliberative uh, democracy. Uh, and it's also a good example about what I mean about institutions that cultivate the best in humans. Because they use technology and they uh, they use a, a, a digital platform for citizens to uh, be informed and have a say and deliberate about some Important uh, political issues, and uh, there, what's very interesting is that platform instead of priming those uh, that are the most, what well, we could say, violent or uh, that took the harsher position, uh, instead they are priming those that are trying to build consensus. So it's the opposite of what we know in uh, in the social uh, media world, which I believe. Is, uh, uh, has a very important responsibility about the, the level of polarization we are experiencing in society. Because through algorithms they prime those that are more uh, violent, those that are t- took the, the most extreme uh, point of view. And, and they also uh, close people in by giving people only what they are most uh, likely to uh, click on. Uh, they are uh, imprisoning people in their own belief, in their own worldview, and we end up with often uh, two different uh, kind of competing worldviews that no longer live in the same reality somehow because they don't access the same information. Uh, so the, the the Taiwan experience with digital democracy, I think, brings a lot of hope of what can be possible to have much more uh, constructive debate and prime, you know, these uh, virtues of uh, civic discussion, respect, trying to find consensus. So that's really cultivating the the best in humans, while often social media uh, actually cultivate the worst. Uh, That's a very good example.
0: So how do we get to this in the West? Because at the moment, we're at a state where predatory capitalism is working as intended. The huge internet companies, who basically have a monopoly on what we see, are all locked in to the vulture capitalists who require their return on investment. So Facebook can't just continue to make a profit each year. It has to continue to make more of a profit each year. It has to grow exponentially. And the way it seems to do that, as far as we can tell, is by accessing new markets, often in the global south, and by creating outrage. and if the whistleblower was correct by influencing democratic processes, so we need that to stop. We are in that state, as we said, where we have prehistoric mindsets, medieval institutions, and the technology of gods, and that technology is destroying us. So, what do we do?
1: So, indeed, uh, as you as you mentioned, you know, it's all uh, systemic, and. And sometimes when I'm being asked about, you know, how difficult it is to uh, change the economy, for example, I'm uh, reminded that uh, the economy, you know, it's systemic. So uh, maybe economy is uh, the most difficult uh, system to change, but if we change... Our education system. If we change, how do we raise kids? If we change, even maybe our uh, uh, health systems. If we change our justice system, and then maybe at some point be able to change our governance system, and then maybe you know it becomes much more, much easier to change this uh, economic system. For for example, my hope is that there are many seeds as i as i was saying of this uh new development paradigm so i think our role is to be able to recognize them for what they are and uh and water them promote them and the good news is that uh, not only they make sense from this larger vision of a new development paradigm focused on being but they often make sense in their own realms in their own sectors so uh, experts in the field of education or health or justice or governance, they are reaching the same conclusions about the way forward. And indeed, some of the societies that function best, maybe uh, at the moment, are the ones that may have developed to a greater extent some of the recommendations that I that I propose in this book. Uh, so, for example, uh, experts working on... Um, what is the future of education, tend to recognize, you know, you, you were mentioning artificial intelligence, et cetera. Of course, this uh, redefines completely the purpose of, edu- of education. It redefines what can be or uh, value added as humans. And as we are now, um, as knowledge is so fast changing and is now uh, fully accessible online, and we now have robots to deal with a lot of these tasks, uh, there, these experts reached the a conclusion that indeed uh, the most important skills will be uh, personal skills, life skills, and I would say it's what I mean about being. So, uh, it will be our ability to, to collaborate. It will be our ability to uh, care for the common good if we have this, if we able to have this uh, vision, and and find, uh, yeah, be able to deal with complex uh, with complexity. Uh, Etc, etc. And this all relates to being and I could develop the same analysis in uh, in the health sector, for example uh, where because of uh, the great burden is about right now is about um, uh, How do you call them? Civilizational uh, disease, right, that are linked to our lifestyle uh, that and because the cost of health is increasing is increasing very quickly uh, with an aging population, uh, this will lead uh, to us. Uh, this should lead policy to focus much more on lifestyles. And behind um, healthy lifestyles, basically, are healthy um, minds and hearts. So it's a lot about mental health then. And so you know, dealing with you know, how we can take care of our health, we'll have to recognize that it has a lot to do with how we can bring about uh, individuals that are healthier within themselves so that they can adopt healthy lifestyle and they can take care of their, of their health. And I could go on with other sectors like that. So that's to me the, the hope. Let's
0: stay in the world of policy for a bit, because one of the things that's very striking in your book is, I guess it's a very obvious link between mental health, mental well-being. Along the generations, if parents have good, resilient, strong mental health, then their kids are going to more likely be resilient, have good mental health. I did see something... The other day asking why are we trying to make our children more resilient instead of trying to create a system that is less traumatic, which is, I think, a useful question. But in general policy terms, if we look around the world, where do you see the nations that are putting health and mental and emotional well-being at the top of their list in a way that
1: works. Yes, so New Zealand is very interesting uh, at the moment. So uh, the president of of New Zealand has uh, proclaimed the ambition of the country to be uh, the best country in the world for uh, a child to grow uh, in. They have taken this well-being lens to public policy, so they have a well-being budget and they have paid attention to some key issues, such as mental health, for example. And uh, so, to be a, a sociologist, I uh, have shown that that the first uh, important thing is to uh, feel safe. And that starts there is different type of safety. One can be a psychological, and it has a lot to do with uh, early childhood. And uh, there, for example, uh, it's striking to realize that in Sweden, for example, um, parents have 18 months uh, to share between the two parents of time where they will receive uh, a very high portion of their usual salary to stay at home. In the US, there is no such parental leave. Uh, So that's, you know, as a federal uh, policy. So uh, you can tell uh, how much difference it can make to how... Children grows and even what kind of values they will develop and what kind of uh, contribution uh, they will uh, offer to society. Psychologists know well that secured attachment that first developed with our parents is the basis for human flourishing and for also how we contribute positively to society. And I'm insisting on this also on this second point because that means it makes sense for societies to invest in that uh, part because they'll get a return of investments because uh, people will contribute positively to societies and we we can see you know uh, in terms of mental health and also in terms of values when you look where uh, uh, the American society is going and where the Nordic society is uh, you can really see uh, this kind of difference in terms of values and mental health and um, Etc. So that's the first uh, safety, psychological safety. There is also uh, very important, which is you know some material safety also, so that we have, or everybody should have, is uh, our basic needs fulfilled. So it becomes easier then naturally to uh, focus on on being and self-expression. Uh, I think one important uh, public policy recommendation in that. perspective is a minimum guaranteed income so that has been uh, coming uh, more and more strongly in different uh, societies and you know in some of the most let's say social democratic uh, model like in Nordic countries etc there is more this kind of social uh, safety nets right so people in general are don't feel so uh, threatened, and you know, like in this uh, survival mode that activate that is very linked to this having mode, and that activate uh, mindsets that are uh, really not uh, positive for for societies. So that's a very important point. We need to to share more. We need more uh, equality, and they are very. Strong, I would say, uh, research that show how uh, inequality is really toxic for society. So there is this graph in the book, uh, you know, from the, the spirit level, a very a very good book uh, that have shown, you know, a, a strong correlation between many social hills and the level of economic uh, inequality in, um, in, uh, in which countries they, they focus on. Uh, but it's true also in probably uh, all kind of, uh, of countries.
0: Thank you. Yes, it is really striking how the Nordic countries have managed to hold on to a degree of democratic socialism in the face of American hegemony, which has been trying to destroy it everywhere else, which is fascinating. But I noticed in your book the most striking graph, the one which does plot inequality along the x-axis and health and well-being on the y-axis. And the one, the real striking outlier is Japan. It has the least inequality and the best health outcomes or, or the least mental and emotional and physical health problems. And I don't know if it's statistically significant, but it does seem to me really quite strikingly different. And I wonder if you know what it is about Japanese society, or culture, or structure, or policy, that makes it so radically different.
1: So I think there is a uh, Japan is a very disciplined uh, society, and uh, where uh, people respect a lot uh, social norms, no, and that uh, has been a conducive. To very low level of you know crimes and and and, and many social heels, and uh, probably a great level of social cohesion. Uh, I would say the maybe the down uh, darker part uh, or, or, or of this model maybe is that it's very collectivist, so it doesn't let. Uh, it has a strong uh, burden on some individuals who feel you know they can't really express themselves. Uh, so that's why Japan does not rank uh, so high in terms of uh, happiness ranking while uh, the condition in their society look uh, really great, I would say. Uh, but but I would uh, add you know on uh, um, something on the international happiness ranking is that, uh, they are often based on what we call subjective well-being. So we ask uh, people how satisfied they are with their lives, how happy they are with their lives, etc. And because of this, you know, uh, having paradigm we are in, uh, probably people in the in the richest countries need to feel uh, more satisfied because, you know, we believe we are uh, at the top, let's say. Uh, but if you look through other uh, indicators, for example, more which are more not uh, declarative but it's no sorry, still declarative, but it's not about an idea. It's about they are asking people you know what are the, uh, the emotions that they have uh, been uh, feeling that day, etc. And uh, the one who ranked first was Paraguay uh, in the in the, the last Gallup report. So there's probably, And overemphasis when because of this methodology uh, tends probably to put a richer country higher in that rankings. While you know, a lot of us when we are traveling, we can see in uh, let's say economically poor countries, we see a lot, uh, sometimes much more than in uh, Western countries, a lot of positive emotions, joy, etc. So, also, we have to be aware about these. kind of methodological uh, aspects and uh, and uh, yeah, not be be stuck in our own, uh, behind, you know, these methodology, they are also uh, our mental models that frame uh, the way we perceive our lives. Uh, I, in the book, I propose myself to look more at indicators for human flourishing, which have a lot to do about mental health. So it's not about, it's not so much asking people, you know, if they feel well, happy, is just to look at more concrete things to see, to see if they are truly uh, healthy individuals uh, that function well in societies, etc. And I think this is a more uh, pragmatic uh, approach. And, uh, you know, you could say, uh, how do you say, someone like a, a maniac, is uh you can tell you is the most uh, the happier person in the world you know at, uh, in, in some cases no but if you look at it uh, uh, more objectively at his uh, psychological state you will uh, realize that he is indeed not so not so healthy and probably not so truly happy.
0: Hmm. Thank you that's really interesting I love the Paraguay example and the sense that if we could get past our Western obsession with having stuff and crawling up the ladders and and being seen to be somewhere higher up the ladder than other people, then we would all be a lot happier. That much is obvious. And I wonder how we get there. Because I would fight a bit shy of a Japanese model of cohesion, if only because in my youth as an Aikido practitioner, I didn't ever go to Japan, but the women who went had an extremely bad time. Japan was not kind to women at all, and particularly not to white Western women. And that's one example, and it may not be universal. But I get quite worried when we start to look at uniformity and Cohesion as if they were the same thing. And I'm remembering always the dawn of everything David's Graper and Wengro, and the extent to which, in our relatively recent past, people, whether they were white colonialists or indigenous, were always wanting to go back to the tribes. If the white people got them, whether they were white people who had been assimilated into the tribes or tribes, people who had been kidnapped and taken away, their aim was to get back because in the tribes there was the sense of freedom and the lack of fear and that they had a social cohesion that wasn't domineering and I assume wasn't taking one particular class of society and crushing it. How do we get to a level of integration where people feel freedom and lack of fear, without feeling as if they're being pushed into smaller and smaller spaces and forced to behave as the majority defines. Do you think?
1: So, what you are, um, as I said, you know, one of the the values that I think should uh, be at the centre of a politics of being is um, it's in my chapter on peace and. Uh, moving from a, a culture of domination to a culture of partnership and uh, and I drew on that uh for that on the work of uh, Ryan Eisler, for example and uh, and they say that cultures of partnership are I- indeed all uh they these imbu all uh systems in the in these societies so uh, economic systems are more unequal uh Uh, justice system tend to punish more people. Uh, Women and children uh, learn very uh, early that uh, they need to obey or they are being punished. What I was saying about, you know, family and secure attachment, etc., I think is very important to develop this kind of culture of partnership. Uh, The other entry point to me are... uh, gender uh, uh, policies uh, because you know if women uh, have more power in uh, governments, in companies, uh, we will see a rise of these uh, feminine values of care, empathy, and even that are linked to sustainabl- sustainability. You know, it has been shown that women in decision power tend to take uh, decisions that are more uh, sustainable for the, for the planet. So uh, to me, these are important uh, uh, aspects of how to build more uh, uh, partnership cultures. Uh, we have talked about uh, economic uh, equality and how we can go in that direction. Uh, I mentioned also justice systems, so going towards more uh, restorative justice systems. And each you know, each of these pieces bring us closer to this more partnership culture than, than the culture of uh, domination. Uh, that are um, prevalent in some uh, some societies right now.
0: Thank you. So I was very struck in the book by the section on business and companies because it seems to me that businesses are far more flexible than political structures. That if enough businesses change the focus of the way that they work, then that can significantly influence society. And there was a beautiful story about the company in France that had 500 workers and completely changed its ethos and thereby changed the whole of its way of working. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please?
1: Sure. Indeed, that's um, it's true that uh, if you want to, to bring more uh, decentralized model, etc., I agree with that. It's maybe not bad. Be that easy uh, uh, in the political uh, systems, but it's very uh, much easier probably uh, in organizations and companies. So uh, in that case, it's it's really about uh, and it's really about self-management, which is one of the three aspects that Frederic Laloux emphasized about what are these teal companies that uh, embody let's say, the next stage of, of consciousness, as you would uh, put it. And it's all about self-management. And instead of having very hierarchical uh, organization, they are very decentralized, organized in small self-managed teams, and they take all the decisions, including even investments, uh, by themselves uh, according to certain rules, Uh, Like, before taking such decision, you need to talk to whoever will be impacted or whoever has a stake in that. But otherwise, uh, people at the lowest level have all the power to engage uh, companies' money. And and many of these companies have been very, very successful. Uh, Burt's Cork is another example in the Netherlands of independent nurse. And they have been so successful that in a couple of years, they uh, uh, had 60% of uh, the market uh, there. So what is interesting, and it goes back to uh, our point on uh, Ostrom, etc., and the uh, CEO and the owner of this uh, company in France uh, that you mentioned uh, say very explicitly that they rely on alternative uh, assumptions about human nature. So even he said, uh, because uh, he said before, we had these assumptions that people were selfish, uh, people were lazy, so that we needed to control them to work. People uh, were uh, not uh, reliable, and we need to lock down machines because otherwise they would uh, uh, probably steal them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that kind of vision creates a need for a lot of control, a lot of hierarchies, and at the end, a lot of inefficiency <laughs> and a lot of costs for to manage all of that and uh, basically say we are relying on a completely different assumptions. I would say a different story, which is what I call, after Charles Eisenstein, the story of interbeing, uh, where uh, people, if they have meaningful work to do, they are intrinsically motivated to do it well because it's a way for them to become more fulfilled. And then they uh, tend to work well and we can rely on them. So uh, that's really, uh, you know, it, it really shows clearly how these kind of assumptions over our human nature uh, enact, you know, because we, and basically, as I said, they, they rely, you know, there's, there have been people researching that for already a couple of decades. And uh, Lalu explains, for example, someone from the MIT, I can't remember his name, a professor, and he developed that theory, theory X and theory Y, saying, you know, there is these two. Kind of story, either you trust or you distrust, and and basically he uh, asks how. So what is the, what is the true? What is the true human nature? And he say, uh, well, basically it can go either way. If you start by uh, trusting people, they will respond with responsibility. If you and you design systems that make us make them respond with responsibility, if you design systems that are based on distrust and control they will try to cheat. They will uh, play the same game that you have, <laughs> that you have structured. So, uh, and I see that in many other sectors. You, know, you look at uh, uh, justice system. Uh, there was a, a beautiful documentary I, I, I've watched for this when I was writing that, uh, that chapter. And it's really incredible to see how different it is of prisons in a uh, Nordic country. I think it was Norway and in the U.S., and in one, you know, the, in way people are kind of living together in a nice house. Uh, people are, are really uh, considered as, you know, human beings, and that just made a mistake, and we need to help them because probably of their suffering, and we just need to help them to come back on the track. And they offer them to... One was recording a music album, so they have a studio in the place, and they play ping-pong with the guards, etc. And while, you know, in the U.S., uh, it's uh, it's very uh, violent, and uh, they tend to assume that people are bad and we need to treat them very harsh, and indeed, uh, they make them worse, basically. And then, then when they can, at some point, go out of jail, they are not able to reintegrate themselves in societies because it has been just so inhuman where they have lived in. So... It's all about you know the assumption that we are doing their frame or systems which then frame individuals.
0: Yes. I loved the bit in the book where, speaking of work and of the different ethos that can be brought, you quoted part of the new ethos in the more enlightened companies, which is people are systemically considered to be good, which is to say reliable, self-motivated, trustworthy, and intelligent. There is no performance without happiness, and to be happy we need to be motivated. To be motivated we need to be responsible. To be responsible we must understand why, and for whom we work, and be free to decide how. Value is created on the shop floor. Shop floor operators craft the products. The CEO and staff, at best, serve to support them, at worst, are costly distractions. That's so obvious, and yet so not the way that business works around the world, where the CEO and the management are seen to be the single most important thing in the company, and the people who actually make the stuff are broadly irrelevant. And wouldn't it be amazing if Amazon decided not to treat all of its workers as if they were lazy and venal and... Prone to skiving and had to be watched every moment of every day, and instead gave them that sense of agency. Anyway, we're heading towards the end of our time together. So I want to dip now towards the end of the book where you have your 10 core messages for the politics of being. And we don't have time to go through all 10 of them. But I want to have a look at number nine, which says each nation needs to reconnect to its own soul and wisdom to develop its version of a politics of being that can support its development and help it bring its unique contribution to the world. Unity in diversity is the key to harmonious coexistence of nations in a globalised world. And wouldn't it be amazing if everybody believed that? So I wonder, are you seeing any nations across the world where this is the foundation of how they're behaving and how their policies are shaped? And if not, do you see any that are heading that way? Or how could we begin to nudge all of the nations of the world in that direction?
1: So, um, first, the good news is that uh, at least in... uh Constitutions, you know, unity and diversity is in the constitution of different countries, including Indonesia, for example, or uh, the European Union. I think it's uh, it's one of the main texts of the European Union, and um, so this is a fundamental principle of, of life, and uh, which is recognized in many countries. The thing is that the paradigm of economic growth has made us compete with one another on the same. Quantitative metrics, so it has not allowed to for each nation to develop its own uh, vision of what is a good life and what wh- what does that mean to be uh, fulfilled. Um, and uh, we see that in uh, many traditional wisdoms um, that uh, indeed are very uh, supportive of the kind of story on which a politics of being is based So that i call it uh, the story of interbeing where we can you know we all flourish together like our uh, well-being depends on one another it depends to uh, how we can connect uh, con- our relationship with ourselves but our relationship also with one another and with uh, and with uh, the earth and all these uh, traditional wisdom have emphasized um virtually all, have emphasized our relationship to the collective and our responsibility towards that collective. So I I, I think it's time for all these nations to reconnect with uh, their own wisdom and also with their history because there have been a lot of disruption uh, through uh, colonization, wars, etc. I mean, we are not really conscious about where we are and where we are going because everything is going so fast uh, so we need really to do that uh, work of looking back and and being able to to feel what has been going on and how uh, how conscious have been have we been working the kind of development path that we are working now and um, regarding your question about where I see that happening well it's very interesting to see in some um countries, uh, particularly in the South and often not uh, rather poor countries, how that part uh, uh, where there is this reconnection and we can see it in uh, political uh, systems and uh, development agenda. For example, we talked about Bhutan and gross national happiness. So obviously that has been a major alternative and it's linked to Bhutan uh, culture and wisdom, uh, in particular the, the Buddhist uh, philosophy, which sets very clearly, you know, the end of suffering or or happiness as the main goal. Uh, I see that also in South America, in uh, the Buen Vivir, uh, uh, Vivir Bien, so living well uh, philosophy, where which has been uh, even enacted in the constitution in some countries. So of course, when it does, uh, so any which is based on indigenous Andean cosmovisions, and they emphasize both, you know, emphasize the same story. They say clearly happiness primarily comes from our right relationship with one another and with nature. So that is something very fundamental in many traditional wisdom. And uh, so when they come to, you know, uh, power and shaping political systems, of course, uh, these philosophies sometimes, as we see, for example, in, in Bolivia or even in, in Ecuador, uh, uh, they are uh, often changed into something, indeed, that is much closer to the paradigm of having an economic growth and extractivism that they were supposed to change. Uh, but they are there and they are shaping new political agendas. I would say the same, uh, they are less example of you know, the Ubuntu philosophy in, uh, in South Africa, uh, shaping very different development agenda, but I would not be surprised that it will be uh, uh, It is seen more and more relevant for societies and and, and should be uh, more and more uh, at the heart of uh, social change and political change initiatives. I believe.
0: Thank you. Yes, so much in there to digest, and we really are out of time now. Thank you for this and for your book. It really is an inspiring. Mind opening read, and I thoroughly recommend that everybody reads it. Other than picking it up and reading it, is there anything that you could say to the people listening that they could bring into their own lives now as something that they can do to begin to affect change and move us in the direction of a universal politics of being?
1: Well, I would say, um, because politics and development paths are embedded in larger cultural paradigms, you know, the the story of interbeing I was referring to. So I think, you know, operating from this paradigm of being or interbeing in our daily life can uh, support this uh, evolution. Uh, So really, you know, we feel like often when we are an interaction with, with some people, and we are talking, uh, or uh, assumptions. We, we talked about assumptions of our human nature, about you know, even about progress, about success, etc. Uh, I think if they can pay attention to you know what kind of stories they are uh, strengthening through their behaviors and words, I think would be uh, very important, uh, so they can choose to uh, more consciously is to strengthen the story of interbeing about, you know, success is is not about having more, but it's more about expressing all gifts for the common good. And, and those that don't get it are rather unhealthy, I would say, individuals because healthy inter- individuals tend to naturally do that. And we need to, to recognize that, that it's not a success. And it's uh, uh, often very um, rather a sign of... Uh, being quite uh, unhealthy, unsafe, etc., cetera, to uh, accumulate too much uh, good, but rather that our own well-being comes from the quality of relationship we have with, with ourselves, with one another, and with uh, and with nature. So, yeah, and I would say from there, just know that this can be relevant for, we can really truly reorient our societies, even if we are quite intoxicated with this overarching paradigm, over-having, you know, we can uh, uh, design, redesign the societies in a way that is completely different where we are organized to foster uh, being instead of of having. So, And there are, as I show in the book, a lot of practical uh, ways to do that, uh, public policies that are being tested and successful, and if we can bring them uh, together in a coherent new vision for societies, we can really make the, the shift that of consciousness that is the cultural evolution that we need right now. So they can pass, uh, great if they can read the book so they can have more uh, information and if they can pass on that message and embody, and embody it, this new paradigm in their, uh, in their daily lives. Thanks.
0: There we go. We can find interbeing and embody it in our daily lives. Sounds wonderful. And we can endeavour to do it. Thomas Le it has been an absolute pleasure to spend this hour with you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your retreat and coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast. I really look forward to whatever else you bring out into the world. And in the meantime, I hope your retreat goes well and peacefully. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much, Manda. It's a a pleasure to to have shared this, uh, this space with you.
0: And that's it for another episode. Huge thanks to Thomas for the depth of his wisdom, for the breadth of his experience, and for his capacity to bring it all together with such humanity and compassion. The recent years at Plum Village and all of his shamanic and spiritual training before that really show through, I think, in the compassion of his thinking and of his presence, that sense of clarity and calm that seems to come from a life in which mindfulness is an integral part. I genuinely recommend his book. It's a really straightforward read, although it brings in so many complex, fundamental issues of our time. It's one of those that you could give to your friends and family and work colleagues who are on the edge of understanding this and want something that brings it all together. So head off and find it, find the website, explore everything about it, and then, as he said, live the world of interbeing. Changing our energy in the world is the one thing that all of us can do, here and now, And the more I do this work, the more I explore the dreaming, the more I explore what it is to connect to the web of life, the more I am convinced that it's the beingness that matters. It's who we are, every bit as much as what we do that counts. So head off and be your work for this week and forever. And we will be back next week with another conversation. In the meantime... As ever, thanks to Cara C for wrestling with the interesting sound from France, to Faith Tillery for the website, for making it all hang together, and for the conversations that keep everything moving, to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, and always and ever to you for listening. Thank you for being there. And if you know of anybody else who wants to be part of the Generative Dance of the World, Buy them a copy of Thomas's book, and please do send them the link to this website. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you, and goodbye.